Good morning. Uh, we'd, uh, it's a pleasure to do Sunday service with you on this wonderful spring day. Uh, my name is Nayaswami Bharat, and this is Nayaswami Anandi. I'd like to read from Rays of the One Light by Swami Kriyananda. Our reading is on reason and intuition. Truth is one and eternal. Realize oneness with it in your deathless self within. The following commentary is based on the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda. Jesus, when addressing his critics, appealed to reason and common sense. In his training of the disciples, however, he, like all great masters, encouraged in them the development of a higher faculty, soul intuition. It is only by intuition that spiritual perceptions are achieved. In chapter 16 of the Gospel of St. Matthew, we find Jesus drawing on the intuition of his disciples by asking them who they thought he was in reality. They immediately understood that what he wanted from them was a subtle answer, not some obvious reply based on his nationality, sex, and the like. Peter it was, at last, who understood and answered the question on its intended level, the spiritual. Thou art the Christ, he said, the Son of the living God. And Jesus turned to him, saying, Blessed art thou, Simon, son of Jonah, for not by human nature was this truth revealed to thee, but by my heavenly Father. And I tell thee this also, thou art Peter, which is to say, a rock. And upon this rock will I build my church, and never will the powers of darkness overwhelm it. Jesus was pleased with his disciple for relating to the question on its deepest level. Reason could not have given Peter that answer. The answer came through the faculty of soul intuition and proved him thereby to be a spiritually advanced disciple. It was his intuitive perception, that insight which cannot be shaken by tempests of reasonable doubt, that Jesus praised uh, that Jesus praised in referring him to him as a rock. The church he referred to next was the edifice of cosmic consciousness. Any outer church institution would have to depend on, as in fact the Christian churches has always done, on the level of understanding of its individual leaders and members. Peter's intuitive perceptions could never have been passed on to an outward succession of prelates. Clarity comes by direct soul perception. Confusion results from excessive dependence on reason as the guide to understanding. As the second chapter of the Bhagavad Gita states, when your intellect at present confused by the diversity of teachings in the scriptures becomes steadfast in the ecstasy of deep meditation, then you will achieve final union with God. Thus, through Holy Scripture, God has spoken to mankind. Om. Good morning, everyone. It's wonderful to see you all here. I'd like to begin by reading from Whispers from Eternity, a book of poems and prayers by Paramahansa Yogananda. 
O Divine Father, Thou art just behind my prayer. Why dost Thou seem so far away? Thou dost tremble in my feelings. Thy presence glimmers through the veil of my thoughts, yet dost Thou seem so far away. Father, come, remove Thy veil. Come, Father, come, hear the voice of my prayer. I want to know Thee, to talk to Thee, to hear Thee speak to me. I want to pray to Thee and know that Thou dost hear my prayer. Show me the way that leads to Thee. Thank you. Well, this morning's topic, reason versus intuition, is... I realize I say this every time I give service. It's a very, very important topic. (laughs) But this really, really is. (laughs) Because intuition, what is intuition? Intuition is the soul's power of knowing God. Intuition is the whole of the spiritual journey. Someone said that spiritual experience is one prolonged state of intuition. So it's through our intuition that we discover God's presence within. I want to start with a couple of very interesting stories. Um, There was a man in South Africa whose name was Lawrence Anthony, and he ran a uh, reserve for wild animals, and he really, really had a way with animals. He really loved animals. And he received a phone call that there were eight rogue elephants and asked if he would take them, because if he would not, they would have to be shot. There could probably be nothing much more dangerous than an angry elephant that doesn't like people. So he loved them a lot, and so he had them sent to him, and basically risked his life um, to talk to them, to convince them that he loved them. He ended up moving in with them, And these were very dangerous elephants, Um, but he actually communicated with them and let him know that he loved them and he tamed them. And they were sent back to their reserve, which was a few hundred miles away. And then another group of elephants was sent to him, another group of wild rogue elephants. And he did the same thing. He tamed them, saved their lives through his love for them. Well, he died fairly recently. And after the day, day or two, in the next day and two days after his death, 20 elephants came walking to his house, single file. They'd walked uh, 12 hours, two different directions. They'd been on different reserves. They'd walked to his house. They did a two-day vigil at his house, and then they walked back. Now, how did, he, how did they know? How did they know that he was no longer there? There's another story also from South Africa, uh, coincidentally, about a man named um, Lawrence Vanderpost who went to uh, study, wanted to study the habits of the um, Bushmen of the Kalahari. And so he had an expedition going out into the desert and he had a Bushman guide. And he was ready to go and, and they'd been in one camp and they were, had pulled up camp and they were ready to move to the next camp. They were leaving early in the morning. Everybody knew. But the Bushman guide was not to be found, and they went looking for him, and he was sitting quietly by himself. And he said to the interpreter, tell him we're ready to go. The interpreter said, no, I, I can't talk to him. He's listening to the tapping 
I can't disturb him when he's listening to the tapping. So Lawrence Vanderpost kind of, you know, paced around waiting for this thing to be over. And when the Bushman came back, he led them, the whole group, in, in great haste, uh, several hours, maybe, maybe most of the day, I don't know, to an oasis. And this oasis had dried up. And at this oasis was a, a group of Bushmen who were practically dead. They had come to this oasis and now they were, because it was dried up, they were caught unprepared and they were dying of dehydration. But this Bushman had heard the signal and he went and they were able to save their lives. Um, one of the Bushmen saw... Um, a telegraph office that they had in South Africa. And they saw how the telegraph messages were sent. And he said, I have a wire in here. (laughs) So how did this communication happen? And um, I know that there are people that talk about ancient memories and this sort of thing. But I think how yogis would describe it is like this. In the beginning, there is only God who we describe as ever-existing, ever-conscious, ever-new bliss. And out of himself, God became creation. And so as we look around the room, we look around the state, we look around the world, there's really only one thing happening. That's the presence of God. And it's taken different forms and different vibrations. But this unified presence is what life is. And when you're, you don't have separation from that presence, then you communicate with all of life. And you communicate on the wavelength of God, which is love, which is joy. And so those elephants were on that wavelength. And these so-called primitive people were on that wavelength, and there was nothing to separate them from that. Well, now, God also gave us reason So this isn't like a bad thing. Obviously, it was given to us by God for some purpose. And so we have reason, and we can think things through, and we can make lists and use computers and get things done and so forth. And now, in our society, reason is worshipped as the ultimate thing. But the truth is, reason is what separates us from that underlying presence of God that's always there. Um, Yogananda said that through reason, man has discovered only one one millionth of the nature of reality. Because reason is limited by the senses. He may have actually been exaggerating that in terms of how much we've known through through the senses. So reason can't help us touch that level of God. There was a man who lived at Ananda for many years, and he was very involved with many things that went on here. And then at a certain point, he left. And we said to Swami, do you think he'll come back? And Swami said, oh no, he won't come back. He was always trying to figure things out. What he meant was his relationship to Ananda and to the path was through his head. It wasn't through an inner sense. And it's that inner sense that is intuition, that is what we need to develop on the spiritual path. Um, As we look at the development of Ananda, 
and the major directions and changes that have happened over the years, they always came from some intuitive guidance, usually through Swami, often through other leaders as well. But with Swami, the guidance was often um, scary. Um, about 10 years ago, when Ananda was dealing with big financial challenges, Swami got the inspiration to start a work in India, which required financial support from Ananda in the United States and so on. And it seemed impossible that such a thing could ever work out. And I know that there were people who thought, why are we doing this? Not now. This is the worst time we could be doing this. And yet, as we've seen in the history of Ananda, these intuitive flows that come from God, even when they seem completely unreasonable, they turn out to be amazing successes. And we're only on the beginning of discovering what a powerful and tremendous uh, work is happening for all of Ananda through India. So how do we tune into this intuitive flow? In a sense, it's what our whole lives are about. Um, There's a book of Swami's called Intuition for Starters. And I really highly recommend it because many people think of intuition as very floaty and random and so on. And in this book, he actually walks you through specific ways to tap into your intuition. And I won't go into the sort of specific method he gives. But I want to encourage you to get the book and I want to encourage I want to share just a few principles of intuition. And the first one in terms of getting guidance in intuition is enthusiasm and focus. On Thursday night in our leadership class, Jotish was talking about what makes a leader magnetic. And he talked about enthusiasm. When we have enthusiasm, we draw things to us, whether it's other people or God's inspiration, God's guidance. It's what we focus on that's where we're going to draw our greatest inspiration. So the question is, what are we going to focus on? (laughs) We could focus on stamp collecting, but there are other choices. We, um, there is a... uh, the disciple of Yogananda, the most advanced woman disciple of Yogananda, Sister Gyanamata, um, has a book of her letters to Yogananda. In one of her letters, she writes to him, Dear Master, I was thinking of you today. And then she writes, But then, when do I think of anything else? She was focused on attuning herself to her guru. And because of that, she said, Master praises me because I never ask him any questions. Isn't that an interesting reason to be praised? But what does that mean? It means she didn't need to ask him questions because if she had a question, she knew she needed to tune in more deeply. And so she tuned into him and she got the answer to her questions. But what she said also, um, near the end of her life, she was bedridden. And... Um, Yogananda was giving a Sunday service in Hollywood Temple. And when he came to visit her after the Sunday service, she said to him, I loved when you said that thing about something. And she quoted to him what he'd said in the service. She was so 
focused on attunement to him that she knew his thoughts. She felt them. He said, oh, you heard that, didn't you? Hmm. So focus. Focus ourselves on what we're on our service to draw inspiration, intuition. Focus ourselves on our sadhana, on our attunement to draw inspiration. The next quality is non-attachment. As long as we are pretty well decided on what we want to do, we can't expect to get intuitive guidance about it. God is quietly standing there going, well, I have an opinion, but I don't think you want to hear it, so I'll just quietly watch. Um, Many years ago, Bharat and I directed the training program for new members at Ananda and it was up at the meditation retreat, and we lived in community together. And so even though we told everyone that Swami recommends that your first year here at Ananda, you not get into relationships, we were living together in community, meditating, having our meals. And so needless to say, people started falling in love with each other. But what, what tickled me so much, because they would come and say, well, you know, I know we're not supposed to do this, but, but you know, they're my soulmate, or I feel like I found the one, or whatever. But what I totally loved was every time, without fail, they would say, we've meditated on it, and we feel God's guidance. And I go, okay. Because when you have a strong desire, when you are in love, you're really not non-attached. And it's, it's really hard to know what God really thinks. So if we want to get intuitive guidance, we have to be in that place of saying, I really want to do what God wants me to do. The next is love and devotion. God is whispering to us all the time, but we aren't close enough to hear him. We're busy running around and doing this and being entertained and thinking our thoughts And I'm thinking of the image of a vine clinging to a wall. That is devotion. That vine is devoted to that wall and it's clinging to it. And that's what we want to do. We want to be clinging to God so that we're so close. We hear what he's saying to us. We want to hear it. We're we're in love with it. We want to know what our beloved is saying to us. And the last thing to think about in terms of intuition is, as Master directed, sitting quietly after your practice of the techniques. That's in that silent period at the end of meditation when we're not doing a specific practice that we begin to open ourselves to being, to just be with God and to be in that presence and to listen. Not that we're listening for answers to specific questions, but that we're in a process of interaction with God, and we're learning about listening, and we're learning about tuning in. I just um, recently read a book that I found tremendously inspiring. It's called um, Dying to Be Me, and it is another near-death experience book, which there are a lot of them nowadays, but they have so much to teach us. 
And I have to say that what I'm going to tell you from this book is actually not the most inspiring part of the book, but it just actually fits with, with this intuition topic. Um, and this woman who wrote it, um, is an Indian woman, her name is Anita Morjani, and um, she was very, very ill, of course, and then died and had an experience of the astral world, and she came back to tell about it, and she, she said, it's hard to describe, but let me use this image Think of your daily life, and this in particular I loved. She said, think of your daily life as if you're living in a warehouse, and it's completely dark. It's pitch dark in there, and you're given a flashlight. And so as you go about your day, making your breakfast, getting dressed, all you can see is what's right in front of you. That's our material life. And then imagine that suddenly... All the lights come on, and not just the lights, but neon lights, uh, strobe lights, uh, uh, skyrockets, energy, expansion. You discover that this place is not only filled with light and amazing colors and beauty, it's gigantic. There's so much going on you can't even fathom it, and it's alive, and you're part of it. Okay, now that's a very interesting image. But what's an int- more interesting to me is I thought, that's meditation. Most of us here probably have not had a near-death experience or one like that, certainly. But we, those of us who are practicing meditation devotedly, especially Kriya yogis, experience times in meditation that feel very big, very alive, very connected, expanding in love, expanding in joy, expanding in calmness. And it's very, very real. And it's more real than our little life of breakfast and job and so on. And what I felt from reading that book, because she, what she said is... Um, after coming back from that realm and going back to having my flashlight, I always still knew that that realm existed. And so it colored my whole, it colors my whole life. And I was thinking that's what meditation does. And we have to do the same thing with our meditation. So when Master tells us to enjoy the stillness after meditation, enjoy that time of just communing with love, communing with joy, then make that your reality. And so when you come back to your life and you're doing what you need to do, you try to hold on to that. And that's our bridge between us. It's our bridge to God. And and so we're experiencing in our daily life, we're experiencing in our meditation, and the two deepen us in our relationship to God. This reading, um, which is week 11, is also written up in Promise of Immortality, um, that, where Swami goes into these readings in much more depth. And in that book, he calls it something different than reason versus intuition. He calls it how to relate to a master. Um, and basically that's what he was talking about in the reading. He asked Peter, who am I? And, or he asked the disciples, who am I? And they 
kind of stand there looking at him, and Peter tunes in to who he really is as a master. And so it's through our intuition that we tune in to our master. But I would like to expand that to our spiritual teacher, to Swamiji, um, even to our friends. We can expand it even farther. Um, With master, how does master come to us? He comes to us through the filter of our self. So he's always um, comfortable for us. Because if it's not comfortable, we, we filter out those vibrations that don't um, that threaten us too much. But with Swami, Swami's right there, and he's he's talking to us, and he's writing things, and, and he, we're much more involved, and so we're much more likely to think in a way, oh, oh, he's so humorous, I really like his personality, or wow, that was really a great thought. But that thought. You know, I don't dis- I don't agree with that thought. Well, now I wonder what's right here, and I, I, you know, what is he, does he know these things? Is he making these up? How much can I, how much can I believe? And, and we're kind of basically using reason. And what he's saying is, no. When we try to relate to another consciousness, especially one that's more advanced than we are, let's get out of reason. Let's just put it aside and let's try to go deep inside of our own spines, deep inside of our own being to feel God's presence inside of us and then from that place relate to our teacher and to tuning in. What is he saying here? Yes, that was a very entertaining talk, but can I feel where that was coming from? Can I attune to the level of kindness that is flowing from this soul? Can I attune to the bliss that is bubbling out even in incredible physical pain or weakness? I was listening to various talks of Swami, as as many of us do, old talks. And in so many of those talks, Swami said, would somebody get me something to drink? My throat is really bad. Or you hear him coughing and you hear him sucking on lozenges, and you're going, you know, he was sick a lot of the time that he talks to us, but this flow of bliss and joy and wisdom and love is coming in. So to just let that, we're approaching summer and we're going to have the blessing of him being with us again, just tune in from your intuition and see how deep can I go. And we don't have to leave that just with Swami. We can use it with our friends as well. We can use it with people that we're trying to maybe analyze. Gee, I wonder why they did that, or why did they say that, or do they have to behave that way? And we can say, they're just the same as me. They're part of that ocean that's God's consciousness. And if I can tune in to God's presence inside myself deep enough, and I can try to feel that presence of them deep enough, then I'll know who they are. Then I'll be on that wavelength of intuition. I'll be on that wavelength of divine love.